Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern. This episode, we're talking about superhero games once again. I just wanted to let you know that if you're in the Denver area, Genghis Khan is going on this weekend as this episode is released on February 11th. Both our guests this episode, Michael Sherbrook, and our host, Ross Watson, will be there running an absolutely ton of games, along with a lot of other former guests of the Gamers Tavern. Make sure you stop by and say hello. And if you want more of Ross, Michael, and I together, I'd like to remind you we have a Twitch channel. Every Monday starting at 8 p.m. Central Time, the three of us are streaming Keep on the Borderlands 2, our playthrough of the Borderlands 2 video game, including all the DLC with in-character commentary. We also have our Shadowrun Game Table Season 2 Plot Resistance every Friday starting at 7.30 p.m. Central Time with Brendan Gitzimer running a new group of characters through a brand new Shadowrun campaign. To watch live, go to twitch.tv slash gamers tavern show or watch the archives on YouTube at youtube.com slash meet in a tavern. Without further ado, grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner as we get ready to talk about superhero games. Welcome to a new episode of the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott. And tonight we have with us a good friend of mine, game designer, writer, artist, Mike Serbrook. Good evening, everybody. Do you prefer Mike or Michael? Uh, anything but Mikey. I grew up in the 70s in life cereal. <laughs> All right, good deal. So no Pop Rocks and Coke jokes then. Now, you've, no. been, on, you've been on the show before. Uh, yes. So we're not going to get too crazy, but we do need to know about uh, your gaming character sheet. Could you just give us the highlights really quick? Well, based on what everybody's been saying, I obviously have positive reputation, hero game author, knowledge skill, hero system, PS writer, uh, contact you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a hero games character sheet because you are a hero games guy. Uh, yes, I would say that. All right. What is uh, What are some things you've been working on lately that people would know you from? Uh, let's see. Fantasy Hero Complete. Fantasy Hero Complete. Uh, Larger Than Life. Right, which just finally uh, has the um, Mutants and Masterminds uh, layout done. So that will be distributed to those who purchased Mutants and Masterminds version. Uh, I am also working on some future projects, which include Savage Worlds, Mutant Masterminds, Hero System Guide to Supernatural Creatures called Ghosts, Ghouls, and Golems. And I have some uh, other products coming down the line, including work with Evil Beagle, High Rock Press, and a project called Strike Force. Oh, I was going to let you tell them about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into Strike Force in a minute. Uh, one thing, Daryl, we need to talk about on this show we have a new sponsor. Yes, we do. Gamefly. Thank you, Gamefly, for sponsoring us. And for the listeners, Gamefly is a place you can rent games. In fact, you can sign up through the Gamers Tavern and get a 30-day risk-free trial for one game at a time. Uh, sign up at GameflyOffer.com slash Gamers Tavern, and your first game will be in your mailbox in just a couple of days, complete with a pre-addressed envelope to ship it back to them, and you'll automatically get the next game in your wish list. It carries everything from Xbox One, the 360, PS4, PS3, PS Vita, the Wii U, the Wii, the 3DS, even classic systems like the GameCube, PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, and the original Xbox. You know, I could I could rent uh, my favorite Xbox game, which is Gladius. Yep. 
Anyway, you, the, the deal is you can play all the games you want for just $15.95 a month or $22.95 a month for two games at a time. There's no due dates, no contracts. You can cancel any time, even during the free trial. Yep. And for a limited time only, for Gamers Tavern listeners, if you go to GameFlyOffer.com slash Gamers Tavern, they're also going to include 30 days free of Hulu on top of all that gaming. Do you have any games you would rent, Michael? I'm not a console guy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's neither fine. Am, neither am I, but I, I just haven't hopped on to the next gen yet, but I've still got my Xbox, my Xbox 360, LPS2 collecting dust in the corner. I might just have to hook those things up and sign up because there's a lot of games that you just cannot get now that came out for those classic consoles. I, I own quite a few of the consoles they support, so I'm excited about that. Okay, now let's talk about Tavern Tales. This is where we ask our guests to give us a story about a memorable die roll. Uh, why don't you do it, but this time, because of the, the topic tonight, I want you to pick a memorable die roll from a superhero game. <laughs> he's got this face right now, <laughs> trying to remember. He's struggling. He's like racking his brain. Where where can I find this this information? Wow. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been doing superheroes in a okay, really well, let, long time. Th- then let me tell a tale of Mike Serbrook and superheroes and, and rolling dice. So we're playing in a game, a, a campaign run by my friend Grady Elliott. It was called Vendetta Rhapsody, and it was set in uh, St. Louis. And Michael Serberg is playing Coyote. Coyote was a speedster ninja, basically, if you want to kind of combine Electra and the Flash, and that's the kind of character you would get. We came up against a lot of really tough bad guys. I mean, Grady liked to put a lot of bad guys on top of us. But the thing was, Coyote was a speedster, so she was almost a guaranteed of going first and zipping through the bad guys and wreaking all kinds of havoc, either on or off her motorcycle with her swords. Uh, she was a pretty impressive character and all that. And I remember that the, the threat had been escalating over time. And we got in this one fight, and, and the funny part was it wasn't really like a – this wasn't like an end boss or it wasn't a big – you know, campaign storytelling moment is just sort of like, oh, and there's some bad guys you fight. And we get in a fight with these bad guys and the fight starts and Mike's like, okay, so I'm going to do, and Grady interrupts him. Uh, I'm going to have stuck you there. Actually, there's someone faster than you. Dun, dun, dun. You remember this, don't you, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> Can you finish the story? I I know I don't remember. Uh, is this the one where I ramped the motorcycle yes. up on top and started just laying waste to everybody? Yes. <laughs> we were fighting on an overpass and you ramped the motorcycle up onto the top of the overpass and started destroying everything you could because by god if you're not going to go first <laughs> i'm certainly going to be standing last <laughs> so that's a great story and i'm glad i got a chance to tell it so i remember on previous times we had to tell the story about the good or bad crazy die rolls. I just wanted to pass this on. I'm very lucky in that I have a nephew who's about, he's like 19 now, who is uh, very much enjoys the same thing I do. So I have someone, you know, despite him being 20 years younger than me, uh, we share the same interests. We can talk about the same things. And he has joined my Sunday, or my uh, Sunday gaming group. Uh, corrupting the youth. Yeah. Yeah. And we were playing, in um, my Well of the Worlds game, and he's trying to help, so he's going to fire his bow at a, at a bandit who is threatening someone they have just rescued from the bandit's clutches. And I said, yeah, here you go. Here's the mods. This is what you got to do. Roll your 3D6. And he drops the dice, and the entire table goes, oh, 
because it was three sixes. Nice. And I told him, I said, hey, my house rule, if you roll an 18, you tell me how you goofed up. And he looked at it, and he looked at the other player who was playing the guy just rescued, and he looked at the layout of everybody, and he said, you know, the only thing I can see is that I shoot him in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so they they quickly made sure to pull the arrow out later on because he had modern aluminum arrows and the bandits all had wooden ones. And so they could say, yeah, bandit got you. We don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Okay, Daryl. I'm picturing blazing saddles right now. Little bastard shot me in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) It was something like that. Uh, This, and this came on top of them all waking up that morning to find out one of their party had been transformed into a horse. So, Daryl, why don't you tell us what is tonight's episode about? Uh, tonight, this is our first sequel episode, I believe. Uh, we are doing our second part on superhero role-playing games. Superhero RPGs Part 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> and we got our show title already. So, Daryl, why don't you start out and tell us about your experience with superhero RPGs? My experience is, unfortunately, very, very limited. Um, the only... I can count on one hand the number of full games I've played that were actually superhero games, uh, one of which was with you, Ross, um, at uh, ChupacabraCon. That's right. What did we play? We played Shadows Angeles, which is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Champions or Hero System. It is Hero System. Setting. Uh, it's a, it's, so it's technically still a superhero game, but it's a lot more kind of anime, sci-fi, cyberpunk inspired which I guess if you go with the Marvel 2099 series from the 90s, then that would still count, but Anyway, it's, it's definitely an edge case because uh, I, I would never describe it as a superhero game. But uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Edge case. What, how about this? Are you aware of any superhero games that are out there? And what's your opinion about them? Uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, of course, talk about the elephant in the room. We've got Hero System. We've got Michael Shorebrook on. We've got to talk about it. Uh, it is classically known as one of the most flexible character creation systems in all of gaming. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, then we've also, if we're going to go back to the classics, we've got one that is currently in Kickstarter, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Strike Force. Do uh, Ross or Michael, do you know anything about uh, this game called Strike Force? Okay, Strike Force isn't a game, first of all. <laughs> it is not nope. a game. Uh, let's, we'll get into Strike Force later because right now let's talk about the games themselves. So, uh, okay, let's flip it to Michael. Michael, what's another superhero RPG that you're really familiar with? That I'm really familiar with? Yeah. That you're familiar with at all? <laughs> Uh, uh, I have played a number of different RPGs that I've not played much. I've, I've only played superheroes in Champions, and I played a little Mutants and Masterminds. Okay, well, uh, let's talk about that one. Yeah, that's. I don't know much about it. I know it's D twenty based and loosely based off um, D twenty and D and D. Steve Kenson is the creator of Mutants and Masterminds. Okay, which I just met earlier tonight, and it's gone through I think three editions at this point. Yes. Uh, it's one of the most successful spin-offs of D20 that's ever been. Uh, uh, Daryl, you can I think it's one of two games that have that came around starting in the D20 boom that is still kind of around. That's uh, Mutants and Masterminds and Pathfinder. Right. Now, we actually have a whole episode talking about different role-playing games in superheroes. Which episode is that, Daryl? Number 23. So go check that one out if you want to hear you know, a lot more about these different ones. I'm going to throw a few out there that I'm really familiar with. Marvel superheroes from back in the 80s. Uh, there uh, good is, old face rip. Oh, my God. I love that game. I love that game. 
Like it's a part of me, right? That's how much I love the game. Uh, there's uh, Icons, which is another uh, Steve Kenson game. There's Bash. There's uh, DC Heroes, which came out again in the, in the 80s. And then DC Adventures, which is a spinoff of uh, Mutants and Masterminds. And there's also the Marvel Heroic Roleplay, which just came out a couple of years ago. Oh, I, I did play actually an extended game in that. The Marvel it, Heroic? Yes, uh, I, I am. Actually, I'm much more familiar with that than Mutants and Masterminds. I rather enjoyed it. Uh, it had a couple of flaws in my opinion, but overall, I, I liked I liked the concept behind it, which is becoming a generic uh, system for that company. Yeah, I one one of the things that I, I talked about this in episode 23 as well, but in Marvel Super uh, Super Oak, Margaret uh, Weissman, one of the best things about that game, in my opinion, was the initiative system. Where it was the initiative system of, is cool. I like it. it. It really fits the tone where it's kind of a handoff where you can sit there and you can keep the initiative all on your side with the heroes, but then all the villains get to go all at once, or you can pass the initiative to the villains to do something. Uh, but it's a good way to set up like team combos. Uh, the example given all the time is the uh, is it speedball, fastball special. Fastball Fast special. Fastball special. Speedball is his own character. Yeah. And by the way, he has a really, that's a, you know, that name in the 90s caused a lot of giggles because, of course, obviously that is a euphemism for speed, uh, the drug. Uh, but anyway, so, so did he ever meet up with Snowflame? I don't know. I don't know if Snowflame was Marvel or, or what. So. Uh, uh, no, it was DC, so no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just like, that's a perfect combination right there Snowflame and Speedball. Now, MHR, which is uh, Marvel or Girlplay, uh, has come under fire for not having a character generation system, for one thing. Yes. And it also frustrated the GM in the game I was in because there's not much advice for what to do when you're not in a fight. It, it really seems to be the attitude in, his, in our impression, his impression, was that it's, it's, designed to, to, uh, you, it's designed around combat encounters and uh, attempting to do task resolution of things that are not combat related, such as social interaction or maybe research or such, is very... Uh, I think skimpily looked at, at least in the version that we had. Uh, and unfortunately, it's no longer, I mean, they lost the license, actually. I was uh, surprised how fast it came and went with that regard. Although, uh, is, that now, is that the Cortex Plus system? No, I think MHR was its own thing. But I thought, okay. But I thought they were using that for other games. They, they might. Were using that for other games now. Cor- Cortex Plus is being used for other games, but I don't, and, and I can't say this with authority, but I don't think it's, a, it's, it's what MHR was on, running on. Okay. It was but it's I, kind of a similar system, but it's not exactly Cortex Plus. Okay. And I think they and I think you are right, they are starting to use the system they use in Marvel Heroic in other games, but I don't think any of them have actually come out yet. Okay, so Daryl, what makes a superhero game a what, what what sets it apart as a superhero game? Uh more than anything else, I think it's tone. There's a specific tone and a specific feel to a game that's a superhero game versus, say, just an urban fantasy kind of game where everyone's, I mean, you look at comic books and the way they are, it's superhero comic books. They are technically urban fantasy. It's people with these weird powers who are doing stuff, but it's set in modern day. But there's a specific style and tone. You are the good guys fighting crime. Even the antiheroes like Punisher and Spawn are still fighting some sort of evil in the world. Well, there's a there's a really great game that flips that on its head a little bit. It's called Necessary Evil, where you play the supervillains defending the Earth from aliens. Uh, but yes, along those lines, yes, that is true. 
there's been a couple of interesting games that, that have come out that changed the tone a little bit. There's one called uh, uh, Progenitor or Primogenitor. Am I getting this right? Progenitor. It's uh, yeah, Progenitor uses, uses the one roll system. Yeah, the ORE one roll engine. And Progenitor uh, treats superhero the, the superhero genre. It's uh, well, Michael, you can explain it. What, t- tell us about Progenitor. Well, it treats its superheroes. It's loosely inspired by Godlike, which treated superheroes nowhere near as four color as most comics. Yeah, this is a, just to be clear. This is a setting source book, not its own game. Progenitor is a setting source book for Wild Talents. Yes, um, and it. And I, it uses a different background, if I recall. Yeah, this is this is the thing: is it's got a tone where superpowers are contagion. It all starts from a single woman who gains inconceivable power and then passes it on to a handful of other people, and then they pass it on. It's it's basically the superpowers are an STD. And the further away you are from the from her, the less uh, you have less and less power. Right. And it's actually a little bit like. Um, it's a little bit like wild cards in that regard, where you have a common origin for everyone, right? As opposed to the scattershot DC, Marvel, uh, and many other superhero settings and champions games that I've been in, where you can, as long as it falls within the GM's purview or okay, you can have that origin. In Godlike, in Progenitor, in Aberrant, as far, and in um, I just went right out of my head what you just told me. That's <laughs> the other one. Progenitor. No, there was – anyways, they all have the, uh, wild cards. The, the, your origin yeah. can be traced back to pretty much a single source or concept. Yes. So, Daryl, mm-hmm. obviously this, these are different tones that, than your normal superhero game. But these, these still fill that – they're still close enough. Is that what you're, basically what we're saying? Well, yeah. It's, the tone still is – it may be a different tone, but it's still a tone that's within the – when I think in my head superheroes, I immediately think comic books, and that immediately puts something in my mind. And I'm trying to, it's like an abstract concept that I'm trying to nail down. The closest thing I can say is tone to it, but there are ways to do it that are not the same, because comic books themselves, even superhero comics, not even taking into account all the different other genres of independent comics out there, specifically heroes in tights kind of superhero comics, even those have a wide range of different styles and tones to them for example look at sandman which technically part of the dc universe he was interacting with batman when he first started out for crying out loud well yeah alan moore's run on uh um swamp thing yeah 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 all of the uh constantine uh hellblazer all of those have a completely different tone than if you're looking at like all-star superman well all-star superman is a very special thing but yes in any of those, it's like it, it, it's wildly different tones, but it still puts in your mind when you think superhero, you can come up with any of those and say, yes, that's a superhero story. It, it, so, so it's one of those cases where uh, I guess we're asking, is this one of those cases that's kind of like pornography? I can't define it, but I can I know it when I see it. Kind of. I think I think it's something that someone could define. I just don't think I'm that person. What about the you, problem. Well, the, the funny thing is, is that I'm a big uh, fan of Asian cinema. And there's a number of times I've watched some of these Chinese, and I'll air quoting here, fantasy films. But I look at them and like say, this is basically a superhero movie. They may have swords. They may be flying around and standing on top of bamboo shoots. But in many ways, they are uh, larger-than-life characters performing larger-than-life feats, often seeking justice and fighting evil and demons and monsters. But 
really it's it's no different from Superman leaping a building and you know being faster than a speeding arrow, leaping a pagoda in a single bound and changing the course of mighty rivers. That's what these guys do. So in some ways it is tone, but it's not the trappings are different. You can have what I think is a superhero story set in 600 BC China. You can have a superhero story set in 1940. You can have a superhero set story set in the year 3000. I think it's the uh, how you t- uh, how you look at it, how the characters act and treat, and and some of the trappings that you're dealing with are. Uh, does everybody have a distinctive costume? Do are they fighting for ideas? Are they fighting against a uh, uh, a foe who's opposed to those ideas? Um, you know th- that starts to bring together a superhero story. Uh, you know it's not necessarily crime per se, but uh, you know evil masterminds, warlords, mad scientists, that sort of a thing. You, you do a little change around, and you can put that in any time period. Marvel sixteen, what was it, sixteen forty or or fifteen fourteen sixteen oh five. There we go. I Thank think. you. Yeah, they've done that. You know where they put the superheroes back in the Victoria uh, Elizabethan era, and uh, there's been other what ifs and Elseworlds from DC that have put them uh, in the future. They've put them in the Wild West. They've put them in alternate uh, histories. So it's I think it's sort of how you write it, what they're doing, what the conflict is about. Uh, Conan going out with his sword, seeking his fortune, robbing, stealing, uh, becoming a warlord, uh, overthrowing kingdoms, whatever. He's not a superhero. Uh, trying to destroy the One Ring, that's not a superhero story. One man standing against a uh, ar- you know, a guy in armor and his mighty army is no different than Captain America standing against Doctor Doom and his Doombots. You know, so you can see the parallels there and you can play something as a superhero story even if it's in a what you would say a genre that you don't think is superheroic. Okay. Daryl, you agree with that? Uh, yeah, because I'm sitting here thinking of a lot of stories. For example, um, one thing a lot of people have said when it comes to anime is a lot of those are very superhero inspired. And the one that pops immediately in my mind is Dragon Ball one Pun- Z. One Punch Man. I still haven't seen that. No, I but yeah, Dragon Ball Z is very, very superhero. I mean, in fact, Gohan's uh, origin story is the same as Superman's. Uh, Alien so yes. lands at Earth. And, uh, yes. Well, Goku's, yeah. Gohan is his son. Sorry, Goku. Yeah, sorry. My bad. And Gohan even adopts a superhero costume as the great Saiyan man. Uh, there you go. So, yeah. So, there is there is some crossover there. Absolutely. What so We're talking about like RPGs and superhero RPGs specifically. How do you categorize those? Uh, let's, let's throw that to Michael. What, how would you categorize the different types of superhero RPGs that are out there? In what way? Okay, so... Icons is a very different superhero role-playing game than right. Champions. And, and yeah. So in what category is, is Champions as opposed to Icons? Okay, so if I'm going to look at a superhero game, let's actually start with this. Let's start with Marvel as superheroic role-playing. It is definitely a superhero game. The problem is, though, is that really all you can play are the Marvel Supers. Now, I know that some people managed to come up with an enormous amount of fan-made material uh, I know I was elated to find out that Next Wave was written up by these guys or for this this system. But uh, it was pretty much limited to the Marvel Universe. So uh, it struck me as being, yes, it's a superhero game. You can have a lot of fun with it. But if you're not playing Marvel characters, you're kind of stuck. So in my mind, uh, superhero games need to be flexible. And you're going to get the inflexible where everything's pre-generated, Marvel Supers, and you're going to get the very flexible 
anything anything you can think of can go, which would be mutants and masterminds and GURP supers and champions and presumably icons and savage worlds. And then some of them are more cinematic. Uh, I would say that in my experience, what I've seen of Prowlers and Paragons and what I recall of uh, Marvel super heroic role playing and mutants and masterminds, they're very cinematic, especially the old, uh, Marvel supers that you were talking about, where you really couldn't kill anybody; it was just bashing damage. Well, you then, you, you could kill. I mean, like they had rules for that, but it was also a very very disincentivized. Okay, because you'd lose all your XP, your karma. Right, <laughs> and then you, and then you're going to get much more realistic systems such as GURP supers, which I've always felt they were shoehorning in the superhero tropes because this, the nature of the system was not very cinematic to begin with. Uh, and that's that's sort of how I've looked at some of these. Uh, I also like Villains of Vigilantes. I remember had a class and le- or not a class, but it had an alignment. Oh, it had a level system, system too. Yeah, right. It had a le- an alignment level system, and I always felt that was that was kind of contrary or just kind of it didn't. Oh, it didn't feel right to me. It, well, remember the time that V and D came out. Well, right, right. When V and D came out, all RPGs were level games, all of them. You know, <laughs> and and Jeff D when and, and he and his buddy made up. Uh, made up VNV, they did it in a way that followed those footsteps. I don't really, I mean, I don't hold them accountable for that. Uh, I think, I think that was just like a factor. Like when you made games in that time period, you, that was like, this is how games are made, right? Uh, so there's that. There was, a, there was a few games that didn't do that. I mean, Champions was one, Traveler, Gamma World. I don't know about Gamma World, but you know, not class level system, but the alignments and some of the other things that felt a little too D&D-ish. Because I think superhero games need to break that mold a little bit because they are, they can be or can contain anything. Yeah, but in 1979, when Villains Vigilantes was being designed, that was the that was the that was the game. Everybody's role playing game had levels in. It uh, kind of reminds me of something uh, I heard about when it comes to board game design. Is the idea is you can introduce a new mechanic to in your game as long as it builds off of mechanics that people are already familiar with. So if someone already knows a deck builder game, you can then add a new mechanic on top of the deck building. And then you can add a new mechanic on top of that and on top of that. That's how we get the modern games are getting more and more complex because they're based on simpler games, but people are more familiar with the basics on it. So when you're talking about 1979, that's two years after uh, AD&D came out, if I'm not mistaken. Two years after Star Wars. (laughs) Well, all right. you're kind of stuck with what is the genre of role-playing game at that point in time before you start breaking away more and more. And, and by now, I mean, the, the, the identity that Bill's Vigilantes has is you, you, it is the, the superhero game you play, which has levels in it. So I, I think they've, that's, that's their niche now. Okay. I'm just, I, listen, I, I'm not saying it's my preferred method or anything. I'm just saying that's like, I can see how they got to hear from there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think one other thing that's important to talk about, Daryl, is whether your RPG is a licensed RPG or is not a licensed RPG. And that one can be a big deal for uh, fans because if you're wanting to play in uh, Marvel Universe, DC's Universe, um, you're wanting to play in uh, Hell, you're wanting to play Hellboy, you're wanting to play in uh, Judge Dredd, uh, anything like that then you're going to gravitate toward those licensed games versus the independence where you've got to kind of create all the characters from that canon from scratch. Or maybe you want to create an entire world yourself, so you might gravitate more towards something where it's not a licensed game like Heroes, Champions, um, Icons, things like that. Well, some of those licenses, it's interesting to talk about them because, okay, so DC Heroes is probably the first 
DC Heroes and, and Marvel Super Heroes were the first two licensed superhero games, okay? And after they came on the market, we've now had games based on uh, properties from Wildstorm. We had uh, uh, The Authority. We've had comics based on, or we had games based on comics like the Valiant role-playing game, which just came out recently from uh, Catalyst. Catalyst. Yeah. And sometimes those licenses get into some interesting places, like the Champions universe became a licensed property that was picked up by an MMO and has now been relicensed to Hero Games. Right? Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, I just thought of something, though. What? Was it Justice Machine before Marvel and DC licensed to the palladium uh superhero system uh maybe justice machine a justice uh, machine you remember that i am not familiar with that one uh, a friend of mine you had that i remember that that was a superhero uh, source book written it was in I, comic books in the late 80s and 90s uh, that's what i'm seeing here on uh, wikipedia yeah. interesting yeah uh and it was I, the subject of a source book for heroes unlimited heroes unlimited yeah yeah 1985 right yeah and it includes details. That the, apparently, the source book is is anyway. <laughs> suffice to say, if you're interested in the Justice Machine and all that, go look it up on Wikipedia. There's quite a bit of information about that. They were published by uh, six different comic book companies over the years. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, getting back to on topic, talking about licenses, I think we have to get into one of the one of the biggest, at least most well known, issues with a license in the. Uh, superior RPG industry has to be when that license is taken away or when it changes. Obviously when the DC universe was put out by Grey Ronin, they had it out for only a few weeks before the new 52 came along, completely changed the DC universe and made that license almost, I wouldn't say worthless, but definitely made it uh, problematic. Do you guys remember that? Um, I actually was not aware of that. Actually, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Daryl, were you aware of this? Uh, the Green Ronin? Yeah. Yeah, uh, we talked about that on our license episode. Then again, I think we talked about this back in episode 23 a little bit. Right. But I think it's something that we should really go into a little bit more detail. But basically, Green Ronin had the rights to DC, but just before they were about to come out and they had all the design done, all the layout done, hey, we're going to do New 52 and change up everything in the DC universe. Right. So um, you guys are... So basically, Green Ronin had to go. Okay, do we stick with what we got already, or do we go from scratch when we get when we're like, well, I think it was what three months out from print. I don't know exactly, but they're, they're also this this had a similar problem with Marvel Heroic Roleplay because they had many many projects in planning for more source books in the line, and then Marvel pulled, pulled the license, which never made any sense to me because it's it seemed to me that the that the product was doing very well and it was very well received. Uh, I do think, though, that what I've heard from conversations with, say, Ross and other things I've read is that the issue is one of perception. You know, if your Avengers movie makes a billion dollars and somebody comes to you and says, well, this is a very popular IP, we would like to make an RPG out of it, uh, you may be thinking, well, RPG market, uh, what is what is that? Is that like this Magic the Gathering that makes 50, 60 million a year? So you're going to make what, 50, 60 million a year when it pulls in 10? They may say, well, it's not worth our time and yank the, like the li- license. I, I, think, I think the licensees at times maybe unrealistically expect more out of what they're selling or, or being paid for than, than, than what there actually is. 
Yeah, for that, the, feel that's true. Well, for the record, Margaret Weiss Productions would have held a ridiculous party if they had made ten million <laughs> on that deal. Uh, I am sure that they made much less than ten million on that deal. Right, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm trying to think what's the most popular licensed product ever. Is it Star Wars? Is it is it DC role playing? Well, of the of the licenses that exist in our you know in our actual real world that are the most valuable. Uh, right now, it's probably Star Wars and the MCU. Yeah. And I think, I, I believe that it may have something to do with the fact that Marvel Heroic Roleplay was not based on the MCU. You never know. I, I'm just speculating. But, right. Uh, and, and I know that uh, I know that conversation with Steve Long because, you know, as a longtime hero fan fa- or, or designer and creator, fans are like, well, you know, you guys should get a license for X. It's a license to print money. And I remember Steve Long saying, like, no, it's not going to work that way. They're not going to tell us what we need to know. Uh, people are going to argue about the game stats. They're going to argue about this. Uh, you're going to get the guys going to nitpick everything. Uh, it's you know it's nece- not necessarily going to give us. It's not you know, and they're going to ask more money than we can afford, and we're not going to make that back. Uh, and this is something that you know all the people who wonder about why companies have not produced licenses for what they think are a great IP. You know, and and a case in point is. Girl Genius, you know, oh, they, we're going to do a licensed Girl Genius source book for GURPS. And it's vaporware. And I've seen them come out and say, yeah, we're working on it, but it's not going anywhere and this and that. And this is from the people who own their own license creating for Steve Jackson GURPS. Uh, and right now I can't see anybody producing for GURPS because I don't see much of that out there. GURPS is, I mean, I, I like Steve Jackson games. I have nothing against Steve Jackson games, but I think it's fair to say I don't know of anybody playing GURPS and haven't known anybody playing GURPS in a long, long time. Right. I'm just bringing up an example, though, of the issues with licenses is, you know, it's it's not the surefire, yep, this is going to make us a fortune because everybody likes it. Well, that being said, I mean, if you could get a license for, say, Star Wars, you know, I mean, there's there's companies that have made good money off of a big license, regardless of yes, the product. Yes, yeah, that is very true. Uh, Fantasy Flight has done very well with Star Wars, and when they were able to bring in Warhammer 40k RPG and, and items like that. All right, well let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit here. Daryl, are you familiar with the issues surrounding villains and vigilantes? There is basically all I know is from what Jeff D. Uh, posts on Facebook all the time about his uh, basically the original creators of villains and vigilantes claim they hold the rights to the game. Yeah. There's a legal dispute and the publisher claims they own the rights. And then when they tried to come up with the third edition of the game lawsuit ensued. Right. So there's a court case that's currently ongoing between them and there's a it's, it's tied up in appeals and it's just it's going through all kinds of, of craziness. But the two creators of the game, which is Jeff D and Jack Herman, are fighting very hard to get their copyright back. And uh, you guys can if you listeners are out there, if you want to help out, you can definitely look them up on uh, is it Indiegogo? Uh, GoFundMe. GoFundMe. You look them up on GoFundMe and see if you could uh, you know, drop them a little a little few extra dollars because uh, those guys, yeah, this they would been, really like to do more Villains Vigilantes. They're getting screwed by their publisher. Uh, I think this it's has been going say, on for, what, four years now at least? Uh, five. Five? Since, since 2011, yeah. And we're, I, th- I think we here at Gamers Tavern are all on the side of Jeff D and uh, Jack Herman in this case, so help those guys out. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a big deal, actually. I'd like to see, I'd like to see Villains Vigilantes get out in the world, but it's just being... It, it's, it seems like it's just kind of a, wrapped up in a, in, a, in a dispute over, I mean, it, it, Villains of Vigilantes, right? How much money is there being made? 
right? I mean, this can't be I, – I can't see this guy fighting Jeff D. and Jack Herman over the money that this product would make. It's, it, to me, it feels personal. It probably is. Hey, hey, uh, Ashley, and, and uh, here's an interesting thing. As far as I know, isn't didn't v, did did V and V spawn the Elementals comic series? Uh, sort of. Bill Willingham worked on uh, V and V when it was in his early days, and characters that appeared in his adventures went on to be in the Elementals comic book, such as the villains from Crisis at Crusader uh, Citadel right. uh, showed up, right. Annihilator and Iron Maiden and all them. So it, interesting. There's a lot of interesting stories about games in our in our hobby, but uh, V and V is one of those. It's it's got a lot of little twists and turns, and it's kind of like a soap opera. You know, there's there's something you can say about superhero games. Is there there are a lot of soap opera elements in a superhero game? Would you agree with that, Daryl? There's a lot. It, it, again, it comes from the source material. Uh, comic books typically are high melodrama. It is all about big, huge people, big, huge characters, and big, huge emotional moments. It's no one's talking about oh so-and-so character's pet died no people are talking about oh my god gwen stacy <laughs> or spider gwen nowadays so you know here's the thing i think about when i think about running superhero games and what makes a superhero game different than a regular uh role-playing game is that superheroes generally uh expect you know, i think there's an expectation that your character has an ongoing story that is separate from that of the team you know, like when we run D&D together, it's the story of our group going along the Sword Coast trying to find this, you know, Castle Cragstone or whatever it is. That's that's our story. But when we're playing the Justice League, there's an expectation that Batman has his own stories of Gotham. You know, you, you see what I'm saying? I think there's a there's a slight perspective shift. And, and I believe a lot of people tend to under, tend to believe that their characters have a slight more import. Their, their character's story has a slight more uh, level of importance in a superhero game than in another type of games. Well, I think part of that, though, and this, but this is addictive superhero comics, is that Batman, we know Batman has his own title. So we know Batman has what he, his things that he's doing when he's not in a Justice League title. And in your D&D issue, well, let's take a look at Lord of the Rings, right? Let's say Lord of the Rings is a comic book. Okay. The comic book, the, that comic story is going to follow these, the fellowship. At no point do we get, do, you know, at no point do we get Aragorn, you know, uh, his own series or his own title to see what he was doing either simul- apparently simultaneously, because that's how comic time works, or, you know, uh, as a prequel or sequel or, or, or other element or side story. So the, the story there is about the group. You're right. It's about the group. But in a comic series, especially in a superhero comic, we've kind of gotten used, at least as a comic reader and, and sometimes in a game, that you're going to get, hey, there's a side story where you're going to be able to have a, some solo, you know, we even have terms. This is a solo issue. Oh, it's a team-up issue. Oh, right. you're going to do a, a side arc or we're going to do a special limited run of you doing this. And the ter- you know so we the terminology and the, the way that the comics are marketed I think applies to the game and we can easily accept these things happening in the game and therefore we understand that there is a bigger story and a bigger world uh, going on. I mean, also in a fantasy world, it's usually the PCs are running around and there's the NPCs they encounter, the barons and kings and knights and brigands and so on. But at no point is it really strongly emphasized that there are other 
adventuring teams of murder hobos running around depriving dragons of their hard-won treasure. But we know in a superhero universe that there's going to be the Avengers and there's going to be the Justice League and there's going to be the Legion of Evil and the Evil Mutants and the X-Men. We know that there's, in fact, simultaneously stories going on all over the place because we usually, unless we're like in these really some of the really bad TV comic stories, we know there's other heroes out there other than this, which is one of the things that makes the MCU so great is that, hey, it's the first time that we have a cinematic presentation where they acknowledge and show that there is more than one hero in existence in a costume running around doing heroic things. So would you read a comic called Boromir's War Journal? I have no idea. <laughs> what, wasn't, that called, wasn't that the appendices, though? It's actually, yes, but... <laughs> so, Daryl, what, uh, what are some types of adventures that happen in a superhero RPG that are different than the types of adventures you find in another type of RPG? Well, it's typically in most RPGs uh, when you're trying, when you've got the villain who's got their plot going on that you're trying to stop, it's you stop whatever they're doing and then you kill the villain. In superhero games, it's more about stopping the plot than it is actually defeating the villain per se. It's you're trying to stop him from uh, turning all of the water into tapioca pudding. Or whatever it is that the bad guy is trying to do. That's now that is truly evil, by the way. Turning I, all water into tapioca, my God. I mean like all my like the God. river, the <laughs> drinking water, you turn on your faucet, it's tapioca. <laughs> that poor person in the shower. Exactly. <laughs> so this guy's out deep sea fishing. <laughs> you know? I can't get back. It's all tech. actually, actually, I uh, uh, and and this is a the pair. The, what would happen to the clouds? They'd all fall to the ground. <laughs> so actually, Daryl makes up a really good point because one of the things that impressed me about the first X Men movie was that up until then, it had been pretty much oh look, Batman fights the Joker, Joker falls to his death. Okay, oh, that character's dead. Batman goes up against Catwoman and Penguin. Penguin blows up. He's dead. Every because the, this concept is that you have to have this uh, definitive ending, and the ending in the movie is the bad guy is dead, and we all feel yay, he's defeated. And I remember watching the first X Men movie in the theater, I believe, and it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, check me if I'm wrong here. But at no point do we actually see Toad get killed or Sabretooth get killed. They've been beaten. They, the plot's been defeated. The, you know, such and such has been saved. But the bad guys, for the most part... Well, they were are, best friends. The bad guy, the bad guy and uh, the leader of the good guys were best friends. Right. But, and the, but the bad guys, like Magneto's captured. A lot of them are scattered. So they're out there and you're like, hey, just like in the comic, they can always come back again. Right. You know, they're not – it's not this definitive, well, he's dead. Well, what are you going to do for movie number two? You killed off the Joker. And uh, this, uh, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe wanders back and forth in that. I think they're a little too uh, trigger happy to, to blast guys. It's like, uh, yeah, you've whacked this dude and this dude and this dude and this dude. But at other points, they come back again and they're still out there. And, now, uh, th- didn't Aaron Alston have something to say about – the villain's plots in the Strike Force. When you were researching Strike Force, I think you were telling me a couple times that what Strike Force actually ended up doing wasn't so much stopping the villain's plot as sometimes being tempted to join the, the villain because they well, had a really good point. Yeah, there, there was a couple of there was a couple of points times in there where he presented things. Well, okay, this is this is uh, well getting into that though. This is uh, one of the things about how to write any villain, which is 
they, to show that they actually have a reason for what they're doing. And uh, we've been actually Ross and I have been playing Borderlands two uh, with Daryl, but we've been playing another round of it. And we've actually talked about why Jack, Handsome Jack, is such a great villain. Is because you, because when you think about it, you play through, you kind of understand where he's coming from. Yes, he's sociopathic. Yes, he's power hungry. But he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's saving the world by killing everybody. He's calling. He he's calling us the bad guys and himself the hero. Right. right, and that's and he he pretty much thinks that way. And in many and there's a couple of cases where I recall where the villain. I think it was Overlord at one time was sort of like saying, you know, you realize that you guys are supporting nations that fight each other and blow each other up and can do horrible things to each other. And I'm proposing that we band together and put a stop to this. And it becomes one of, you know, are you for justice or are you for law or are you for free will? And there's a lot of good philosophical argument and melodrama there. I mean, it, it comes down to the Superman question. Yeah, he could, he could make sure that it was a paradise, that Earth is a paradise. But that means that he deprives everybody around him of choice and he becomes what he doesn't want to be, which is simply a strong man forcing everybody to do what he wants. Yeah. Actually, Shannon Applecline wrote this article about the hero auxiliary core. Uh, Shannon Applecline, of course, is the writer of designers and dragons, which covers the history of our hobby. And uh, the hero auxiliary core was this group of guys that ran convention games in the eighties uh, up to the nineties <laughs> and a little bit beyond. Uh, but they are their their most influential stuff was they were running games of champions where it was not about the fight of the bad guy. In fact, the, the, what their adventures were about was confronting the bad guy and then finding out that there was something more going on. It's that the moral question that was presented to you, right? Because they were not interested in just beating up villains. They were interested in finding out uh, what your heroes would do if they were presented with an opportunity to do even more good. Because often what would happen is they'd run across a villain, a plot that would seem villainous at first, but would actually be like, well, we're going to go back in time and stop Hitler. We're going to save the world by uh, taking apart all the governments and replacing them with, you know, this uh, super geniuses uh, plan for the uh, utopia, uh, utopia civilization. Right. And so, so their adventures were all about these questions of what is being a hero about, which I thought was great. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's been pointed out that many of the best Superman stories have nothing to do with his power and his capability, but it, with the decisions he makes and the quandaries he faces that have nothing to do with being stronger, faster, tougher than anybody else on the planet. Perfect example, actually, is All-Star Superman. You know, his, one of his struggles yes. is, does he reveal who he is to Lois? Right. And, and actually, one, the, the best is, you know, uh, when he asks, is asked a question, what happens when the in, immovable force meets the irresistible object? Uh, you know, it surrenders or, it, it, you know, it, 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 he, he's, not, he's not trying to, I mean, he is ridiculously powerful in that series. And, it's a, and at times it's great fun to see Superman do these, you know, golden age stunts of stapling right. the moon back together with bridges and stuff like that. But on the other hand, you know, there's that moment where he... Stops what he's doing to save a girl from suicide. Yeah, I think I think superhero RPGs are special because they can focus on all the really cool, amazing things that you can do. And those games are super fun when we're just kicking all kinds of supervillain ass like we did in Vendetta Rhapsody. And we are, you know, definitely superhumans where the, the army and the, 
The police are just not up to the task and only we are the ones that can handle it. But there's also those questions, I think, that superhero RPGs really get into about that moral choice, about what being a hero is, what does it mean, right? I think those are the things that I think they're really cool about uh, superhero RPGs is it allows you to explore some of those aspects you'll never really see uh, very often, I think, in other RPGs, especially ones like uh, Shadowrun, which are a little more morally gray, right? Yeah, and um, since we've been talking about Strike Force, uh, there's a whole section in the manuscript where Aaron talks about the themes uh, of his Strike Force campaign, and one of them was, what did it mean to be a hero? And he had a series of questions in which, you know, that this is things to put toward him. Is it, is it, is it okay to, to profit from your powers? Is it, is it heroic to uh, kill a surrendered foe or, or, or such, or an incapacitated foe, which is the Punisher attitude? Now he's dead. He won't come back again. Uh, you know, and, and has been pointed out by the cynics, myself included, well, the Punisher never misses he never shoots the wrong guy. You know, he has the scriptwriter behind his back. So he yeah. always is he's always doing it. He's always getting the right guy. But at no yeah. point do we ever actually see him gun down, say, the, the the drug pusher who's actually an undercover cop, and then he has to deal with that. You know, and finally, you know, he know he's always in the right. Uh, it gets to be a bit boring. And it, and it's interesting to see when the heroes and this is actually Astro Street is a perfect example of this, in which the heroes are the characters both hero and not have to deal with various questions um, dealing with living in a superhero society and dealing with people with superhuman powers. Yeah. Like one of the things I loved about Astro city was the story of steel Jack. Now steel Jack is a villain. Yes. He's a villain uh, who is re- finally, you know, released from prison and decides to reform, but he, he stumbles across a plot uh, that's, it puts the insider city in jeopardy and he jumps into action Heroically, but the problem is, is that in a superhero society in Astro City, once you're a villain, that's all you'll ever be. They, they, the heroes will never see you as anything other than, oh, it's Steeljack. He must be breaking a bank again, right? And and I think that's a that's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating look at class and even race, if you will, right through the lens of a superhero book. And it's interesting because up until that issue, you know, they present. What's the name of the superhero? What's the Superman analog? Uh, Samaritan. Samaritan. Thank you. Wow. How, how long have I been reading this, this series? Uh, you know, but you're all for Samaritan. You know, you really like you can you can understand where he's coming from. You can see the struggles he deals with. You can this, and then there's a couple of shots where he he you know he zips in and looks at looks at uh, Steeljack. You know, I'm watching you, and zips away, and you're like, this dude's a complete dick. Doesn't he know what's really going on? No, yeah, and, and you feel like if you're if you're looking through the eyes of Steeljack. What was a comforting heroic figure is now this all-seeing Big Brother style oppressor. Yeah, who's just like, dude, I I just got out of jail, and you're gonna stop by and tell me you're watching me? Thanks. I guess I uh, kind of you know, reminds me of, of the um, from the Paul Dini Batman cartoon. Whenever a uh, penguin tries to go straight, yeah, yeah, Batman's just there the whole time. It's like I'm watching you. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Same problem. Like, dude, leave me alone. And then when and then when the truth is revealed, it's you know it's it's quietly hushed up because the heroes realize like oh well we can't have it revealed that one of our own went bad, and you know you're like what, you know come on yeah and, well and, and there, it's it's just but it's it's very well done right it deserves the awards it got and it's a case of yeah you can t- you know it is a superhero story it has superheroic action it has. 
that stuff going on. It is an obviously comic book story and universe, but it 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 can show a different. You know, it's possible to tell a story and show a different right. side of what we're used to. Now, I want to I want to bring out like since we're on the topic of comic books, I want to bring out two comic books really quickly that I think illustrate a fantastic setting for a superhero RPG. Because when I was reading them, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I would love to have a character in this world. Okay, The two comics I'm talking about are both by uh, Mark Wade. Uh, let me just double check that really quick. But I think it's by Mark Wade, And they're called Irredeemable and Incorruptible. Uh, yeah, that's Mark Wade. And the thing is, uh, these two comics are mirror images of each other. They both take place in the same universe at the same time. Okay. Daryl, have you heard of these comics before? I have not. Okay, so the, here's the thing. Mark Wade wrote this book called Irredeemable. And in Irredeemable, you have a character called the Plutonian. The Plutonian is Superman. He's got, he, he's got everything Superman's got. He's got the whole secret identity, works at the, as a reporter, you know, the whole shit, right? He is Superman. But in Irredeemable, what happens is uh, there's this sort of slow buildup of frustration where he's constantly hearing all these people crying out for help and he can only help so many. And then he, he's frankly just like, he, he needs a break, right? Like he just can't, he can't seem to catch a break. It's like, what happened if, 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 if Superman, everything went wrong, everything, the Kents, you know, uh, they, they're, they're, they love their kid, but after a while, even they are just like having problems like any other normal family would have, or, and this is the real kicker. Uh, the Plutonian, reveals his secret identity to the love of his life, the the reporter. And she not only rejects him because he's lied to her this whole time, she rushes out into the main room of the Daily Planet equivalent and reveals the secret identity right then and there. Holy shit, Clark Kent is Superman. She comes running out, right? So-and-so is the Plutonian and just blows his his whole thing right there. Turns him down, says, I don't, you know, you've lied to me this whole time. I don't love you, et cetera, et cetera. And he's just, he's broken. He's like a broken freaking man, right? Now, this is there's other things that are going on, but the, amongst all these problems, the the Plutonian basically decides, fine, fine, I I don't need this anymore. I'm not going to be Superman anymore. I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want to do. You know why? Because I can. <laughs> so, irredeemable is about what would happen if Superman's finally snapped and started doing all the things he always wanted to do. And he like turns, it, it turns an entire country into a diamond, and just like you know slaughters hundreds of people. I mean, just whatever. If you if you come up to him saying, "Please help me save my cat," he's just as likely to kill you as he is to talk to you. Uh, so this this is a post apocalyptic superhero world, because when Superman goes bad, I mean, what do you do, right? Like, countless superheroes die trying to stop the Plutonian, right? All all the the criminals are just like, "Holy crap, what the hell is going on?" And, and then you have the flip side, which is uh, uh, incorruptible. So in incorruptible, you have a supervillain. Uh, wh- who is a supervillain? Uh, what is he like? If you had to compare him, Mike, to uh, to a character we all know really well, who would you compare him to? Uh, he's a lot like Sebastian Shaw in some ways. I'd say Colossus too. Okay, yeah. just just imagine a really strong, really tough guy who's also a bad guy, and I mean a really bad bad guy. Like he's. I mean, he's not like uh, he's not like the Joker. He's not a mass murderer or a serial killer or anything. But he definitely is like, I'm going to rob a bank today because I feel like I need pocket change. I'm going to go, you know, smash open this vault. And if anybody gets in my way, I'm going to probably crush him like paste. I mean, has he killed people? Yes, but he doesn't take like zero rounds of pleasure or anything. But he does all this. He's sort of indulging himself when he realizes, holy crap, the Plutonian's gone bad, right? And the whole world is screwed. <laughs> 
and he, he takes a moment to think about this. And, and so this guy, uh, I forget what his name actually is. Um, uh, his name is Max Damage. That's right. Max Damage basically decides, he's like, you know what? The only reason I was doing all of these crazy things as a villain, the only reason I was indulging myself to the limit of what I could do is because I knew no matter how bad it got, the Plutonian would always be there to save, to stop them. The Plutonian would always be there. And now he's not there anymore. Somebody's got to step up. So Max Damage, this world's one of the world's most leading supervillains, is like, okay, I'm going straight. He like just he blows up his villain lair. He walks away from you know his uh, uh, his underage partner. He walks away from uh, just just everything and becomes he starts becoming a superhero because somebody has to step up. And like I said, it's just a fascinating setting. And I think that's one of the powers. That's uh, one of the powers of the superhero genre is it allows you to tell stories that are really thought provoking. And I would love to play a character in that world where those kinds of things are going on. Daryl, yeah. The whole time I'm sitting here thinking about, uh, we're talking about moral choices. We've got probably one of the biggest reveals in comic book award-winning book, Watchmen. Oh, yeah. The end of Watchmen. I did it 25 minutes ago. What do you think I am? Some kind of Republic serial villain? (laughs) But the actual moral quandary there, so spoiler alert, if you haven't read the 25, 30-year-old book at this point, or seeing the 10-year-old movie. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you're listening to this episode and you have not read <laughs> Watchmen, just go read Watchmen, for Christ's sake. It's a freaking amazing book. It's won multiple awards. It's yep. one of the best comic books ever made. Go read Watchmen. Only comic book on the 100 must-read list from Time Magazine. There you go. But the the quandary is we've, we're there at the middle of the Cold War, at the height of the Cold War, worse than it was in our world at the time. They're like literally seconds from launching. So he creates a threat that will unite the world against uh, basically an alien invasion in both versions of the story, the movie and the uh, comic book, where they've got an external threat to unite the world against this threat. And the question becomes, how far will you go? Exactly. Is it do you this whole thing's based on a lie? It You have killed hundreds of thousands of people to potentially save billions. Do you let that go to make a better world? Is it worth the cost to make a better world? Is it worth the cost to sell out your own morals and back this plan and not expose right. it or not? You can't really. So, so, some characters can't compromise with that and some do. Yeah. I mean, that's the quote, no compromise, not even the face of Armageddon. Yeah. And then night owl, it's too big. It's, it's the, you know, it's, it's, I think that parallel is FDR knowing that Pearl Harbor was going to be bombed. How do you deal with that? It's too big for anyone. It's such a big concept or such a big truth that after you just can't, you have to put it, he has to set it aside. He can't, he can't, he has no way to judge it. So these are the things that we get out of comic books, but I want to ask Daryl, did you want to say anything more about the types of plots and adventures that you would do? One thing that uh, was really, really good about these sort of uh, story because the villain typically is going to be getting away. It makes it a lot easier to create an ongoing story arc about a big bad because, Oh, you fooled my plan this time. Let me, I'm escaping now or okay. You've locked me into the revolving door prison. I'm going to escape in two sessions from now. We destroyed him, but it was just a doom bot. Exactly. So you've got 
ample room to create an ongoing story, which is something that we've talked about a lot on the show is how do you get those campaign style stories going? Right. This hands it to you on a silver platter. So real quick, perfect example of this sort of concept of, you know, the villain getting away is in the Marvel role-playing game we were in. We fought Doom. And at one point, the, our, the players looked at each other and the question was brought up, well, how do we know it's really Doom? And I said, it's very simple. If he wins, it's Doom. If he loses, <laughs> it's a Doom bot. Unless, unless Squirrel Girl was on your team. Right, unless, right. Unless, no, Squirrel Girl was not there. That's the only exception. Squirrel Girl, he'd still do. And yes, we ended up winning. And, and the GM was like, well, you called it. It was a Doom bot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, um, let's actually switch gears here a little bit. Daryl? What about making characters? Now, we, we've talked about making characters a lot for fantasy games and uh, our Shadowrun. I actually think we should probably do a whole show on character creation at some point. Oh, yes. Uh, but for, for specifically for superhero RPGs, what's character creation about? What's it like? It is a lot different than you would normally think of because a lot of people, the first thing they try to come up with is race, class, role, whatever. And a superhero, though, the first thing you're going to want to come up with is what's their thing? What's their gimmick? You, do you have a healing factor and razor claws? Do you fly and have laser vision? Are you super fast? You tend to come up with a theme, a character first, and then try to work the mechanics to create that character. At least every time I've tried to make a character for a superhero game, that's the way I've always approached it, which is very different from the way I approach other characters. What about you, Michael? Well... Uh, you've made a few characters, I know. For yeah, just a few. <laughs> You're, for the listeners, Mike Serbrook is well known as the character creator guy for Champions. He has made hundreds, if not thousands, probably thousands of characters yeah. uh, for any every genre imaginable for the Champions uh, role playing game. So when we're asking an expert, this is the expert on character creation for superheroes. So the thing is, is that if I'm if I'm okay, if it's a Shadowrun game. It might be, hey, what's everybody else playing? It's actually, actually, for many games, I, I can tell you that I'm playing a pixie. Right, right. right. <laughs> but in fact, in fact, in, in, in many games, it might be, well, what's everybody else playing? Oh, we've got a fighter. Uh, uh, you know, well, the D and D five E game I was in, the GM goes, you really might want to play a wizard because we don't have any. So, in many games that are uh, many fantasy games, let's say Shadowrun and some of these other ones, you might look for the niche. Uh, the MMO niche, you know, do we have a tank? Do we have a healer? Do we have a guy who buffs? Do we have this? And a champ in a superhero game, uh, that goes out the window. You know, like somebody might say, well, we've got a couple of bricks on the team. A brick, for those who don't know, is anybody who's superhumanly, really superhumanly strong. And you might say, yeah, but there's always room for one more. You ever seen the Avengers? If classic Avengers has Wonder Man, Iron Man, Thor, the Vision, Hercules, I mean, that's five guys you can all, you know, bench press tanks without breaking a sweat right there. Well, even the Justice League, Wonder Woman, uh, Superman, and Green, uh, not Green Lantern, uh, yeah, yeah, three of the five, big five are superhumanly strong. Right. So that, that niche concept, it can be there because – each of those uh, super strong guys in the Avengers has a niche. One's a god. One's a technological marvel. One is able to density increase and go de-solid. One, you know, blah 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 blah. Yeah. You know, uh, so it, it comes down to me actually. There's different factors, uh, and it may be that you there's often just a hook that you grab. Something you go, hey, I want him in this costume. Hey, I want that power. Hey, this is his motivation. 
but it has to be something I think that fits uh, for for color. I mean, the motivation is not kill guys and take their stuff. The motivation is I'm here to to find the you know I'm here to make sure that what happened to me as a child, the murder of my father and mother in front of me, never happens again. Or I'm here to to you to because I was told by my uncle before he died that with great power comes great responsibility or i'm i'm here because i'm sworn to uphold the ideas of the united states or i'm here because i'm i, I feel that i can make the world a better place i'm trying distance. to redeem myself because i found out that my company was being used for evil right or my father was was evil or something like that and so uh, there's there, there's the there's the look factor you know, what costume do I have? Do I have a cape? Do I not have a cape? Do I have a you know logo on my chest? There's the motivation factor. There's the sheer wow factor of my powers. Yeah, I want a guy who stretches. I want a guy who's super fast. I want this, you know. And so there's a lot of different things you can use, but it's often uh, much more colorful and large in life. Um, uh, let's go back to Strike Force. actually. The reason why Aaron Austin created his character of Lightroom with his bright red and white costume and glowing laser sword and, and glowing body was because he had four other guys in his first game session that all dressed in black and skulked around in shadows and were basically trying to be Batman. <laughs> you can only have so many black clad dark avengers of the night before you're like look we gotta balance this out with somebody who's, you know, who's i'm batman no i'm batman no yeah. i'm batman uh, uh um and 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 i and i will admit that i have um one swear of my to me no <laughs> me no you swear to me over here swear to me are you gonna, are you gonna talk like that to the entire interview <laughs> And uh, and actually, uh, Daryl, uh, uh, one of my little projects uh, on my website is, and this is, works for superheroes, is that I will find pictures and I will look at the image and I'll say, hey, I can make a superhero out of this. Now, what does this image tell me? And then I'll run with that, you know. If the and if the character is very doesn't wear a whole lot, I'm like, that tells me that character's got to be invulnerable. Is the character you know got armor on? But maybe they're a techno technological character, you know, that, that kind of a thing. And and so there's a lot of ways to build your guy. Uh, but in the end, I still think that the character needs to emphasize, I think, the hero as well as the super. Much like that great line in Kingdom Come where uh, Superman is chastised because, as the one character says, you have forgotten about the man and all you're thinking of right now is the super. Interesting. Well, Daryl, what are some other things you would do when you're making a character for a superhero game? Well, we were talking about we talked about the man. Let's talk about the super for a moment. <laughs> Make sure your superpower is useful because no one wants to be stuck in a game playing Cyclops. Okay, I'm going to push back on that. I think it can be interesting to play a character who, who has a somewhat more limited power. Well, it's it's not so much the limit per se; it's crippling over specialization is the trope. Well, I think I think it, it, as a general rule, avoiding that is a very good idea. Let's, but let's, I would let's stipulate that. I would also argue that Cyclops is not a good example. He is actually I have there's he if written well, and that's always a big factor. He is effective. He is a good leader. He ha, he's got a good tactical sense, and he has you know his superpower. There are much worse. Like, really? This is your power? Most of the mutants from the 90s when <laughs> off the damn rails. Most, you know, uh, most Liefeld characters. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, mean, I mean, before Deadpool, I'm not a fan of Deadpool, and I always feel of, uh, that the best sum up, summation of him was that, you know, Deadpool's mutant power is to be surly, which I think was the original version, and nowadays his mutant power is to be a goofball. 
but uh, you know, I I've never particularly liked that guy, though he's actually a poor example because he can regenerate from anything. So he's actually rather useful. But I'm also thinking the Legion of Substitute Heroes. What's your power? I can turn into a stone human. Hey, that the thing is, is Legion of Substitute Heroes is some of my favorite characters. Because of the way they overcome that limitation, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. Is I think it can be really fun in the right in the right uh, team with the right context. You could make a guy with that power be great. It's also a case they made Aquaman uh, badass in the '90s or the early 2000s when he lost his arm and then just said, "Screw it, shove a friggin' trident in my in my stump." Yeah, and and actually, this this boils down to outrageous. This also boils down to the biggest issue of all of this, which is. It's a matter of in the comic, the writer, and in the game, the player and the GM. If Ross is trying to run the classic uh, post-Crisis and Infinite Earths Justice League International uh, written by Giffen and uh, those two guys where it was, it was superheroes. Uh, wasn't, it, wasn't it DK Didio? Uh, no, no. It, uh, but you know, this is where the blue. This is where uh, this is where you found out that Martian Manor was addicted to Oreo cookies right. and all that kind of stuff. If you're trying to run that sort of superhero game, where yes, you're fighting major threats, but it's done a little. Dema- uh, Demetrius. Yes. Yes. Given and Demetrius. Yeah. Right. If you're trying, if you're going for that tone, and four guys show up, and we're we're going to all play, you know, black clad Dark Avengers of the Night. You're stuck. Either you're going to have to look at them and go, "Well, this is how we're going to play it," where you know you are. You're going to have to rethink what it is that you're running, which is why that session zero concept that we spoke of in the other podcast becomes important. Yeah. Well, let's talk about session zero. What's session zero? Session zero is, I think, a really important element of any game, and uh, this is perfectly illustrated when Ross came to me and said, "I'm going to run this game called Shadows Angeles." And uh, as I've said, said before and we're talking about it, I had a complete brain lock. I was like, wait, you want to run a game in one of my favorite genre concepts, which is magic cops fighting monsters. I have no idea what I'm going to do. So I asked him and I said, well, what's everybody else playing? And he went through it and I went, wait, you know, it's an anime inspired game of magic cops fighting monsters. You have listed five males and none of them are magicians. I know what I have to play. Magic girl. Yes, exactly. And when we came around for Shadows Angeles 2, we kind of sat down, maybe by email, but in a sense, and we said, well, wait, what do we want to do? What do you want to play? What are we going to cover? So session zero becomes actually the session where the GM presents what he's doing and the players just uh, buy into that so that you don't end up with these D&D horror stories that I never understand where some dude shows up with his chaotic evil, half elf, half orc, half dragon, celestial, demonic, whatever, and you're going, and, and the GM goes, how do I play with this? How do I run this character? And I, my, first of all, my thought is, haven't you ever heard of the word no? And second of all, what is your universe like? Do they understand what you're trying to run? And that's what Session Zero is often all about, making sure that everybody has their niche, which is something Ross has talked about before, and making sure that everybody understands what the GM is doing and the GM understands what the players want. This is less important, I think, in a superhero game because most of the time everybody understands it. But if you're running Astro City, that is a significantly different feel than if you're going to run Godlike or Aberrant. Okay, so let's let's do an exercise. Um, Daryl, why don't you be the GM? You're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna tell us what the superhero campaign is like, and then Mike and I will make quick character sketches for you. Okay, let's. I'm see. gonna cheat. 
(laughs) (laughs) Trying to think of what I would run, but eh, screw it. Something I probably wouldn't run, but would be fun to create characters for. Let's go Silver Age. Okay, so like Batman Brave and the Bold? No, I'm I'm talking like Silver Age when it got really silly. Oh, like 1960s giant typewriters and stuff? Crypto, the super dog, and Supergirl (laughs) has a horse who has a crush on her. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. We are going really Bobo weird. the monkey kind of okay, stuff. Okay. Okay. So clearly my character has to be an ape. If we're playing. Damn it. So I'm an ape. <laughs> so I, I am playing, I am playing an ape. I will be playing uh, an ape who has the power. This ape has the power to grow to an immense size. And uh, he is going to call himself capital G. And his, his actual name is Grodd. So how did he get his power? Um, he was exposed to a meteorite that fell into the zoo where he and his fellow animals were being kept. And the cosmic rays gave him this, this ability and also gave him uh, sentience. Okay, I was about to say, can he communicate? Can he speak English? Oh, or? Yes, you know what? Actually, I'm going to change my mind. He's not, he, he's, he, he, capital G is not his name, actually. Uh, he is actually, his, 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 his secret identity is a private detective. So he's a private detective who's also a superhero who happens to be a, a, a walking, talking, intelligent ape. And so how does he disguise himself to pass? Oh, I have a fedora and a trench coat. That's all you need in the this, in this Silver Age. Okay. <laughs> By the way, that, that someone posted a meme that suddenly made Superman make a lot of sense. All it was was I can totally buy people not recognizing Clark Superman as Clark Kent by putting on glasses because I can't recognize Zoe Deschanel without banks. Without her banks, yeah, yeah. So you've completely stolen Michael's idea. Apparently I did. The, the great- uh, actually, I'm looking at my original Champions characters on my website, and <laughs> the character I was thinking would be perfect is Algernon Patrick Emerson. Ape. <laughs> We're both monkeys? Really? <laughs> I don't think I get to be – well, here's, here's the difference actually. Wait, wait. Let's roll with this because you know something? It is perfect. I think it would always be perfect Silver Age – to actually have a superhero team of, of primates. Apes. Oh, yeah, totally. We'll so, be the Apes of Wrath. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so, 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 the difference or, or wait, is, wait, wait. Monkey Business Incorporated. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> He's a private investigator, right? Who can grow yes. to huge size. So, Ape uh, was found in the abandoned ruins of a supervillain laboratory. So, he's apparently the result of some sort of nefarious pl- uh, plot to uh, uh, give apes human intelligence. He's either been altered that way through strange radiations or or chemical processes or drugs, or he's some sort of experiment of uh, where they planted the the brain of a person in an ape, under a gorilla. We don't know. He doesn't know. Uh, And, of course, the person who created him may be out there somewhere and will eventually show up when it's at the worst possible moment. But... Uh, Ape is also a, a scientific genius of sorts. That's his shtick, is simply actually being a gorilla in a man's world with uh, his uh, specialized hand-to-hand combat style of guerrilla warfare and uh, having a very – actually being extremely smart and having a number of scientific uh, capabilities and, and, and disciplines that he knows and having contacts, contacts among the university where he – uh, does his research. What do you think? 
I think we broke Daryl. No, we did. Nope. I think we uh, totally did. Nope. I am coming up with the uh, your nemesis. Oh wait, wait! I forgot to mention my my character's name is Kong Marlowe. That's his real name. Pi, yeah, Pi Kong Marlowe. <laughs> All right. Uh, wait, wait, but there's he, two. He goes. He goes by. He goes by the Great Kong when he is in his giant shape. So wait, there's two of us. Shouldn't that be nemeses? Well, <laughs> no, no, there's it's it's one nemesis for both of you for okay. for, the, okay. for the team. Uh, he is the shredder to your Ninja Turtles kind of thing. Uh, his name is Taylor Heston. <laughs> Wow. I like that. Get your damn dirty hands off of me. Yep. <laughs> okay. Taylor, got it. So we talked about character creation and we talked about a lot of this stuff. I think um, I want to segue into this project we've been mentioning several times, which is Strike Force. And I think we have to talk about the influence that some products have on our industry. Okay. I mean, some of the most influential superhero games have been Marvel superheroes. Uh, Those Vigilantes has got a, a niche. Champions has got a niche as being a very influential game. But one of the most influential things of all of those games is a supplement that came out in 1988 called Strike Force. So uh, let's ask Mike. Mike, what is what is Strike Force and why is it so influential? Uh, Strike Force is or was, and when it originally came out, one of the first accountings of a long-term, in this case, about eight years campaign. Um, There are campaigns that were produced as games before. If you, uh, Glorantia was in fact the designer's campaign, which eventually came out in a book form and is a source book. Uh, Tecamol was sort of a world-building exercise and presumably a campaign. But this was the first time I think somebody saw a, a superhero campaign uh, presented in this fashion in which the uh, origins of the campaign and how it came about and the tenets and what and what uh, house rules and such were used and how the campaign evolved and progressed over eight years were presented along with the lessons learned by the GM, who was the writer, Aaron Alston, and his advice to other people on how to run a game. And that was the uh, – that – scarce dozen pages out of 96 were possibly some of the most influential dozen pages ever written for gaming at up to now. Okay. Now, Daryl, were you ever uh, back in 88? Were you, how how aware were you of things like strike force? I wasn't aware. I didn't get into gaming until about 91. So you weren't aware of it at all. No. Even, even three years later, you just blip on the radar. No, I was, I was in my little Shadowrun corner because I wasn't allowed to play D&D. <laughs> so I was just sitting over here in my little FASA Battletech Shadowrun corner for years until uh, the toward the later 90s I got into World of Darkness. And then uh, when 3rd edition came out, I finally got into D&D because I was a grown-up then. I could make my own choices. Wait, wait, wait. But, hold on. Hold on. Let's, so it, let, let, let me, let me double-check this. You couldn't play D&D because it had, what, demons and magic and stuff in it? Yes. But a game where you ran around shooting people, dealing with toxic spirits and summoning uh, magic that blow apart like cars and, and corporate entities. A, a game where you shoot people in the face for money. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> because there were no demons in it. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but hey, as technology sacrificed everybody, so yeah, that's good. <laughs> Now the the only Shadowrun book I was not allowed to get was uh, Universal Brotherhood. So so Derek, uh, Michael, you talked about what Strike Force was. 
Yes. Uh, why it's so influential? Well, I, I can answer a little bit of that myself. Daryl, you've heard of you've heard us discuss some things like player agency, right? Yes. And you're aware of the concept of iteration, and you're aware of the concept of the importance of story and immersion and all of those things. The social contract, which we've discussed quite a few times on this game, uh, on this uh, podcast. Yeah, I've been actually been trying to compile a kind of glossary of all the terms that right. we use frequently on the show, and those are basically a good chunk of them right there. Aaron Alston was talking about those things in 1988. Strike Force was talking about those things in 1988. I don't think we understood them in, in, no. in terms at that time, but that's the genesis of that. See, here's the thing. Aaron's book, Strike Force, is the first one that really came out and said, players expect different things out of a game. There are different types of players and they have different things that they want. There are ways to immerse your players and to leverage the genre and to enforce the genre uh, to get everybody on the same page. And, and he, had, he had all these great ideas that were so far ahead of his time. We have language now to talk about those things, but he really didn't. But if you look at, if you look at 1988 Strike Force, the seeds are there. And that's why it's such an influential book. Uh, Steve Kenson actually was talking about this earlier tonight. We were on the BAMF uh, podcast with uh, Serbrick and, uh, and myself were on it with Steve Kenson. And Steve was talking about how it influenced him and, and woke him up to all of these great ideas that had, hadn't really been talked about before that point. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, and Daryl, you're already aware of this. But Mike Serbrick and I are involved in a project called the Strike Force Project where we are creating a new version of this book, and a version that updates – that Aaron Austin was working on when he died, that updates everything to a more modern look. It has this great campaign setting that is, he evolved over 22 years of play. It has 31 characters, uh, the heroes and villains of his universe, some of whom were played by guys from our industry, like uh, Steve Jackson, Steve Jackson Games, was one of the original uh, members of Strike Force, for example. And uh, Aaron is this, this very talented guy. He died in, in 2014 when he was working on this new edition. So uh, my friend Jason Walters picked up the gauntlet and said, I'm going to make this happen. He went out to Texas. He got the uh, Aaron Alston estate, Aaron's family, to, uh, to give him permission. And uh, we're now making this book happen, Michael and I are. So I got to ask you, as, as a guy who doesn't really do a lot of superhero RPG gaming, uh, what would interest you about a new version of Strike Force? Well, it's not, it's not that I don't want to play superhero games, just that I never seem to get the opportunity to do so. But I do love collecting those books and reading them because I'm a big proponent of even if it's something that's not my thing, I can still find something useful in it. So like you were talking about the different explanations of how to run a game, set up a game so that the player expectations meet the GM's expectations. Right. Things like that. Good advice over running and designing and crafting a game. And like we were talking about, a lot of these uh, genres overlap. So even if I never do get to play in a superhero game, elements that will help me, I can pull this and put it in my D&D game, or I can put it in my Shadowrun game, or I can put it in my Vampire game, or I can put it in Shintar or something else entirely. Okay, so... Michael, why don't you tell us about the Strike Force project? Tell, tell, tell the listeners what it is, because we're we're re- we're resurrecting this really influential project. We're we're uh, bringing it out for a new generation. So, as you said, Aaron was working on a new version, and what the Strike Force project is is an attempt to distill 
several hundred pages of material in a somewhat more digestible 240, approximately 240-page format. Uh, it is going to look at Aaron's views and comments on the gaming, on superhero gaming, on superhero game design or campaign design, and it'll it'll give us a look at uh, how he ran a game that featured 20, 30 players, not all at once, and dozens and dozens of, of, of player characters, 20-some-odd years of history, uh, hundreds of sessions, multiple campaigns run by himself and other players and so on, all, all in one universe. And uh, the, the methods and techniques he used to keep things interesting and fresh and to communicate with his players and find out what they wanted so that when he ran a new session or season or arc of Strike Force, he could incorporate what right. the players wanted to do in that session. He, he, managed, he managed to get players coming back for more for over 22 years, and that's a hell of an accomplishment. I want to find out how he did it. And that's what Strike Force is going to do for people. It's going to tell you how to run a game that's incredibly memorable, that's good, that's a, that's a, a long-lasting, kick-ass achievement kind of a thing. Now, Aaron, like, who is Aaron Alston, right? Are you familiar with Aaron Alston, Daryl Mott? Uh, yes, I am, because I actually know more about his work on Star Wars. Right. Uh, he was a prolific writer for the Star Wars uh, licensed novels, a lot of the X-Wing series, uh, the, some of the new Jedi Order stuff. Um, basically the last few collection of books that I was reading uh, of the Star Wars universe were stuff that he had written. He also did a lot of D&D stuff back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the Dungeon Master Design Kit, Complete Fighter's Handbook. Rules Cyclopedia. He, yeah, Rules Cyclopedia, which is a huge one. And he also worked on some of the early Greyhawk stuff like the Grand Duchy of Karamikos. Uh, Mistara as well. Yeah. So so he's a, he's a novelist, really well known for his Star Wars stuff. He also worked on some Terminator books. That's not a lot of people know that, actually. But he did a lot of Star Wars novels and Terminator novels. So, so he's well known for, for a number of reasons. He was also a really good friend. Uh, Mike Serberk and I both knew him personally. Uh, I got a chance to speak to him at length a couple times. And the guy was just a super nice guy. He was always well known for being a, a strong mentor. He would be happy to take time out no matter what to – to talk to anybody who had a question, he never turned anybody away, you know, and this was what he was working on when he died was an update to his beloved strike force setting. So we're doing this book as a tribute to this fantastic creator. Now, one of the things that's really great about this, Daryl, uh, do you have any idea how much information there is on strike force? Uh, as far as I'm aware, there was only the one book that was published, but if I'm thinking a 22 year long campaign from a writer like Aaron, and his personal notes. Have you hit thousands of pages oh God. yet? Yes. Here's the thing. <laughs> we we Mike could give you the hard numbers, but I, I estimated that given all the notes and stuff that Aaron took, the Strike Force universe and all of the things that are associated with it is the equivalent, rough equivalent, of four hundred issues of the Avengers. So we're talking probably about 10, 20 million words at least. <laughs> Well, I, Mike, Mike I can was, give you a breakdown on it. Yeah, I was okay. So, give you an idea. I have a flash drive, not in my hand, because <laughs> I, I, I carefully put it away. I have a flash drive that was given to me. Here it is. That says Strike Force Files on it. And when I opened it up and copied the, the data uh, file off of it, it was 600 megs zipped. I opened it up, it was uh, ballooned up to 800. 
Uh, I did a get info to find out how many files are in there, and the number is over five thousand. Uh, it includes a PDF of over three of over two thousand pages, another PDF of over three thousand pages. It includes a folder with seventy four documents that were Aaron's documents for his projected series of books describing the Strike Force universe. Uh, the the documents range in size from a sixty word brief outline to a 120,000 word description of an entire uh, setting. Uh, so you're talking probably a million words right there. And this does not count the character sheets, the artwork, the spreadsheets, the plot notes, and, and everything else that's in there, um, which uh, <laughs> the part that I still have to chuckle about is going, oh, this doesn't look like that much. Yeah, this this is about uh, a week's worth of two weeks. For, it's six weeks to get through everything. Michael's I, is the first guy we thought of to go through all this stuff because he's a fantastic researcher. He's very thorough. And I was like, how long is this going to take you? He goes, oh, a week. Nope, I need two weeks. Nope, I need four weeks. And it turned out to be six weeks worth of freaking effort. Yeah. I have on my Google Drive, just to put this in perspective, you said 600 meg zipped, right? Yeah. Yes. To put this in perspective, I have on my Google Drive, Every single thing I have ever written on anything, that's every short story, every notes for game sessions, every role-playing game character I've ever created since I got my first computer back in 1994, I have saved all these files all the way up until 2016. Unzipped 400 megs. Wow. Now, at the moment, to give you an idea of what, I, of what has happened, the directory on my drive that contains Strike Force 4 publication is now uh, 1.6 1.06 gigabytes and 6100 items of that actually i'm sorry 949 megs 950 megs and 5800 items are errands and this includes all of his chronicles all his entries to rogue gallery his original strike force document notes and uh the breakdown of strike force episodes 1 through 260 so 260 sessions minimum yeah, which if you think about the, if you think a session of, of gaming, now he his sessions were actually pretty long. Uh, but even like a, a typical four hour night is probably two two issues of a comic book. That's why I, I put the estimate of about four hundred issues. Yes, uh, based on an interview with Dennis Lubay, that two hundred sixty sessions is somewhere around two thousand hours of gaming. Yeah, so. Aaron and his team, they did a lot of gaming. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to run a campaign for 20 years to appreciate Strike Force. It's just that this, this book grew out of actual play. And the lessons and the techniques that Aaron used and the, uh, the, the, uh, the mistakes he made over time, he puts all that kind of stuff in perspective. So a game master who's like, man, I would like to run, I would like to run a badass game. I want people to walk away from this game talking about it years later. This book is going to be the one that they're going to pick up and use because Aaron did it and he told us how. And that's, that's one of the, the, the things that sets Strike Force apart from anything else. It's the only book out there that's really a campaign guide, especially for superheroes, that says here's how to do a 22-year game and how, here's, how, here's what I learned along the way. What I find interesting is something that Daryl said, which is that he sat in a Shadowrun corner. And I was just thinking that if you ran a Shadowrun game like – in a way similar to how Aaron ran Strike Force, this book would be perfect for Daryl. Because, Daryl, imagine this. Imagine you come to your players and go, look, guys, we're going to run a dozen sessions of Shadowrun, and then we're going to run a dozen or two dozen sessions of something else. 
And each of these sessions is going to be a season. So this is season one of Neil the Orc Barbarian and his pixie barbarian sidekick. <laughs> okay. Okay, I like this already. Right. Damn so it, the end of those, damn it the Ross end of those, is going to make me run this. I'm going to pawn this off on Brandon, damn it. <laughs> but if you envision it almost like, yes, you're running, not in this case, because I think Shadowrun lends it better to say a TV show. So you're running... You're going to run it like you're actually going to run it like the like Daredevil and Jessica Jones. You're going to run a dozen issues or a dozen dozen episodes of your Shadowrun game, and you go, okay, that's season one. And then Ross is let's let's pretend we're all in the same town. Ross runs something. He runs Shadows Angeles for a dozen sessions, and I run Fantasy Craft for a dozen sessions. And it's it's coming time for you to to you to run Shadowrun again. So you hand Ross and I. Uh, so you know I'm playing Navajo, Navajo Jobs Elf mage and private investigator and he's playing his pixie and you're and you have an uh, npc uh, johnny teutonic okay and we have our and we have neil the orc barbarian as our gm as our gm pc and you hand each of us a sheet of paper that says what are your plans for session for season two and you actually have a couple of headers to tell us what you want and we fill it out and now you look at it and go okay so they're going to do this and i can do i can plot from that that's what aaron did he, after a while, real, uh, he's alternated his Strike Force game with others so that it wouldn't burn everybody out and everybody would have a chance to do different things and you wouldn't be always playing superheroes. But he prepared for each season, as he put it, with these handouts, either mailed or emailed or whatever, where you could take, you could fill it out and step back. And if this sounds very familiar, it is also a tactic that has been used in a lot of games, most notably the Dresden Files game it uses uses this exact same mechanic that's borrowed from strike force yeah that's where it came from this strike force is like the casablanca it can't, it's all it all kind of stems from that foundation in fact fred hicks is a, a big fault he's a he's actually been really helping us out with this project and in, in, in getting the word out and things like that and he's a very big fan of, of this particular book because it's influenced him now so here's the thing. We, we've kind of build, been building up to this, but basically there's a Kickstarter running right now. Uh, I hope, I hope, hopefully we will get this pot, this show up while it's still running. It's yep. in its, we just finished the first week. It's got 20 days left to go. So at the end of February, it'll be over. But uh, Strike Force, Aaron Alston Strike Force is on Kickstarter and we've already hit our initial funding goal. Uh, we're at twenty five thousand. We're looking to get thirty thousand for full color. We're looking for forty thousand to get a hardcover, and we've got a stretch goal of fifty thousand, which is all about a strike force anthology, including a bunch of great stories from authors uh, who are fantastic writers about uh, superhero stuff, like Mel Odom and Richard Lee Byers and uh, Mike Stackpole, Elaine Cunningham, Jane Linskold. We have a great list of authors. Now, here's the thing: Aaron had some unfinished, sorry, unpublished, not unfinished, unpublished short stories that we're about strike force that are going to be in that, that anthology, if we can get that up. Uh, so we're excited about that. And there's, there's just plenty of material to go like forever. If, if, if we, if the, if people want to see more strike force, we have plenty of material to build even more and more. So uh, we hope that uh, both Michael and I myself really hope that you guys will go check out the Aaron Austin strike force Kickstarter and help us make this book as awesome as we possibly can, because it is a tribute to our good friend, our, our slain brother, our, our fallen companion along the way this guy who influenced so much of this hobby that we love uh aaron alston so uh let's get this show wrapped up daryl what are your final thoughts on superhero rpgs part two uh it's making me really want to actually play in one for once i it's a lot of fun i it's a it's a fun concept that i just haven't had a chance to explore because things just don't uh, it, it's like timing never works out right for me to actually get into a superhero game 
but God, I'd want to. And speaking of Strike Force, like I said, I don't play a lot of superhero games, but even this is going to be useful for me, even if I never do get to play in one, because again, seeing someone who is going through all of those things, all of those massive campaign and see how their mind works and how they were able to get everything up and running and working. And it's something that's really, really appealing. Awesome. Uh, Michael, what are your final thoughts on superhero RPGs? I think it's some of the most fun you can have. Uh, It allows some of the most freedom of character design and adventure. I cut my teeth on superhero RPGs. I was introduced to role-playing. I was introduced to role-playing with D&D in the late in 77, 78. But I think I really, really was first introduced to role-playing with an R-O-L-E in 1985 when a friend of mine said, I want to run Champions. And I've, I've enjoyed Champions and superhero RPGs and role-playing ever since. And Daryl, uh, are you going to be at Gen Con this year? I'm not going to be at Gen Con, unfortunately. Uh, at some point, when we're at the same convention, we have to make plans for me to bring the not best introduction to superhero role-playing convention game that I have, in which you can play one of the members of Next Wave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Next Wave Agents of Hate. It is a fantastic game, and Michael runs a really good game of it. So yeah, you should definitely check that out. I don't actually have a lot to add here. I mean, it's well known that I am a big fan of all things superhero game related. So, you know, I'm just excited to see what happens next. I want to see there's there's new superhero RPGs that are coming out. There's actually one in, in progress for um, the Sentinels of the Multiverse. And one of the key parts of that game, I got a sneak peek at it, is it's it's got ways to introduce that whole idea of issues that are my issues of comic books and I'm also participating in the Sentinels team, and they have their issues. Um, so it, it takes a meta-level approach where you all realize you're part of a comic book experience. And I, I really like that. I, I think it's, it's very cool. <laughs> so there's there's all kinds of new superhero games that are kind of coming out or on the horizon. Like uh, Sean Fannin is working with Len Pimentel on a new version of Prowlers and Paragons, which is a great superhero RPG. Uh, there's, there's, there's some great, great stuff coming out for it. And, of course, Strike Force. So... Uh, I, thank you, by the way, to all the listeners. Thank you to the backers. Thank you to anybody who who's, takes the time to consider and check out our Kickstarter. We really appreciate it. Um, and that's pretty much all I got. So, Daryl, do you want to take us out? And thank you very much for listening. And until next time, may all your hits be crits.